Hey folks, I just wanted to start off by thanking you all for your patience during these past couple of weeks, as I've been trying to work out a more consistent schedule for balancing my work, my personal life, and my podcasting. Second of all, I have a bit of an exciting announcement. Starting next, probably Sunday, uh, so August the 14th, I will be having a guest spot on a new podcast. It's called Atu Wat. And it is me and my buddy Greg as we discuss some ancient alien conspiracy theories. If you want to go follow the podcast on Twitter, you can follow them at AtuWat. That's spelled A-T-U-W-A-A-T. And with that, let's get to this week's episode. Hello, dear listeners. If you've been following along with this criminal saga... You've likely heard this three times already. This is part of a series. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, this episode will not likely make any sense. You should go back and listen to the prior parts first. Previously on Liminal Criminals, the Congregation of the Oversoul a cult founded by Jason Mackerel de Groot based on the twin principles of cosmic unity and identity theft, began to open alternative wellness stores, headed by their earliest new recruit, the Silicon Valley millionaire Guy Fredericks. Fredericks, a person who was as canny with technology and logistics as he was bad at everything else, managed to turn these stores into a marketing disaster forcing De Groot out from the congregation headquarters in Fugged Point, California, where he had been hiding after fleeing from the police. De Groot, having spent his convalescence yo-yoing between sulking, viciously arguing with his second-in-command, Holly Beach, and writing the holy texts for his cult, was eager to return to the field and quickly turned the dying business into a marketing juggernaut that spewed forth crystals bad art, and overpriced bric-a-brac, and in turn took in money from gullible yuppies. A handful of said yuppies became new initiates into the congregation, and were soon love-bombed and browbeaten into submission. With this combination of success in finance and recruitment, the Congregation of the Oversoul soon gained the attention of American popular culture, thus propelling it to further and further heights of eminence and power. How did the cult spend the remaining years of its existence? How did Jason de Groot fall from grace and into prison? We'll find out on today's episode. I'm Sam Putnam, and you're listening to Liminal Criminals. The late 1990s and 2000s were a booming era for the Congregation of the Oversoul. With their influx of initiates, the cult was able to improve not only its headquarters in Fugged Point, California, but also began to expand its reach across the United States and, in turn, the world. 
the Oversoul Wellness Company's healing centers began to pop up in major cities from New York to Berlin, offering overpriced spiritual merchandise and a gateway for wayward souls to be drawn into the congregation. The Wellness Company branched out into other ventures, ranging from multi-level marketing schemes to meditation apps to an ill-conceived subscription box service called Overbox, which folded in 2012 after it was revealed that the specialty healing minerals that came in each month's boxes were actually radioactive. Regardless of these failings, the Oversoul Wellness Company was a dominant force in the New Age hocus-pocus industry, posting reported earnings of $1.2 billion in 2007. The congregation also took this time to diversify its portfolio beyond the realm of spiritual materialism. In 2004, Unicorp Holdings LLC, a shell company belonging to Guy Fredericks, purchased a number of tech startups. These included Nostra, a former subsidiary of the Garlic Pit whose records were destroyed shortly before the breadsticks bombing of earlier that year, Ballspot, a website known primarily for hosting edgy online games and badly animated cartoon pornography, and, most importantly, Mondo Entertainment, a company known for the online pet collection game Fuzzy Friends. The former two companies provided little in the way of financial returns. Mondo, however, became a major success for the congregation, with the company not only providing the cult with a solid income stream, but also with a means for Jason DeGroote to surreptitiously proselytize to a younger audience. On even a cursory read, it was evident that most of the new lore for Fuzzy Friends had been lifted, in one way or another, from the mysteries of the Oversoul, ranging from a Tome of Holy Wisdom proclaiming the unity of all creatures, to the existence of Huskoth, an evil corn monster whose presence parallels Jason de Groot's belief that corn was part of an interdimensional conspiracy to dull the mind and corrupt the body. By 2010, the congregation and its quasi-legitimate subsidiaries had not only become a financial titan, but also a cultural powerhouse. As the congregation reached new heights of success, it also sank to new depths of criminal behavior. As more and more initiates ascended through the ranks, they became a part of the congregation's identity theft machine. Remote offices, called oneness ranches, began to spring up in parts of rural America. There, on these plots of land purchased under assumed names or by hastily constructed shell companies, the more technically minded of the congregation's upper echelons engaged in hacking, phishing, and something called jerkling a form of fraud that technically requires a degree in forensic accounting to discuss. Pop-up boiler room call centers dedicated to scam telemarketing and wire fraud served as temporary bases of operations for the less technically skilled members of the cult. DeGroote's decision to use identity theft as the basis for his cult has long been debated by criminal scholars. Dr. Thomas Cho of the Harvard Divinity School suggests that this reflected DeGroote's belief in the inherent divinity of humanity and the strange nature of his vision of God. After all, if each of us carries a spark of the divine within us, it may follow that we have the right to be as ineffable, capricious, and destructive as the Oversoul itself. 
Adam Cheesley, a forensic accountant for the FBI, dismisses this claim and suggests that the congregation used identity theft as a way to flex its power, committing fraud in the same way that other cults might stockpile guns. Holly Beach, in her 2016 interview with crime journalist Amanda Lipinski, denies both of these suggestions, and instead argues that Jason DeGroote was out of ideas, operating on short notice, and was high off of his balls on cold medicine when he made this decision. Regardless of the reason, the congregation's use of identity theft provided the cult with a number of useful tools. First and foremost was its obvious power as a money-making scheme. While estimates are hazy, most experts place the cult's revenue from fraud in the hundreds of millions of dollars per year. This money, when laundered through a variety of businesses and contacts, provided yet another revenue stream for the religion's financial engine. The congregation also used its criminal influence as a means of keeping newer recruits in line. When initiates fled the cult during the late 90s and early 2000s, they quickly found that their bank accounts had been drained, their credit had been ruined, and their social security numbers had been spray-painted onto billboards throughout their hometowns. Those who attempted to help out apostates, including their friends and family, would suffer the same fate. Soon, knowledge of what happened to those who fled congregation compounds helped lower the annual rate of cult SKPs from 124 in 2000 to just 15 in 2003. The congregation's prolific identity theft may have been one of its greatest tools, but it was also the cause of its downfall. The cult's army of fraudsters, as luck would have it, were held to a strict quota. Members of the congregation's upper echelons were required to certain a certain number of identities, or a certain amount of money, per week. Should they fail, they risked demotion, or, worse yet, banishment to the spider pit, which at this point had become positively saturated with ravenous arachnids. In May of 2009, Maria Laredo, a former technical writer and current Level 15 evangelist of the Oversoul, had stumbled onto a problem. She was behind on her quota. Unfortunately for Laredo, she worked in one of the congregation's call centers in Los Angeles, and had been assigned a part of the phone book which consisted largely of UCLA frat houses. The bulk of her marks thus reported that their names were D's Nuts, and that their social security numbers were 420-696969. Having determined that these personal details were not, in fact, accurate, she grew desperate. Laredo remembered that the congregation owned Fuzzy Friends. She remembered that Fuzzy Friends was funded primarily by parents who offered up their credit card information in exchange for a moment of respite from their preteen children. What was more, she remembered that she had a friend who worked for the cybersecurity end of Fuzzy Friends' operations. With these three pieces of information in mind, Laredo called her friend, Gregory Blair, and asked him to do her a favor. Blair provided Laredo with access to the unencrypted database of Fuzzy Friends' financial information, which she used to shore up her numbers. As parent after parent of Fuzzy Friends' users received alerts that their identities had been stolen, Mondo Entertainment claimed that they had been hacked by an outside source. The authorities, however, began to recognize a pattern. 
while the congregation had typically been secretive enough to avoid bringing down the full wrath of the feds, this latest scandal provided the FBI with enough information to begin an investigation in earnest. To make matters worse for the congregation, the tide of public opinion had begun to turn against them as well. In 2008, Unicorp Holdings had divested itself from the online animation portal Ballspot, following a rash of media criticism for the site's hosting of the controversial animated gore-fest Mr. Fluffy. Ballspot, in the ensuing few months, had announced Unicorp's decision, and said that users could expect server outages and technical glitches in the time that it would take for the site to find new investors. The site's user base, or freeballers as they referred to themselves, flew into a rage. With the passion and dedication of socially maladjusted teenaged boys with too much time on their hands, they quickly began to dig up as much dirt as they could on Unicorp Holdings and, in turn, the Congregation of the Oversoul. By 2009, this army of freeballers had independently covered much of the same information that had taken the FBI years to collect, ranging from the details of Jason DeGroote's childhood to the congregation's policy of retaliation against apostates and media critics. Jason DeGroote, now facing investigation by a federal agency, a highly visible scandal, and swarms of nerds clad in sarcastic slogan t-shirts outside every major congregation facility in the United States, became more erratic than usual. He sought refuge by locking himself away for days at a time, abusing whatever stimulants he could find, and going on screaming tirades at those who provoked his wrath. By the end of 2010, Groot had turned violent, having taken to throwing things at people who questioned him, looked at him strangely, or existed within a ten-foot radius of him. Three members of the congregation's inner circle went missing during this time. It is unknown whether these disappearances were successful escapes or something more sinister. As the new year began, however, de Groot's foul mood abruptly vanished. He appeared calmer, nearly emotionless. His twitchiness and habit of hurling obscenities and blunt objects at his underlings in the congregation's headquarters had vanished. On January 23rd, he gathered Holly Beach, Guy Fredericks, and the original members of the congregation who he had first converted back in Inferno Real. His expression distant and his voice muted, he delivered his final, most important sermon. He informed his followers that he had spoken to the voice of the Oversoul in a series of waking dreams over the past month, and that to weather the onslaught of public backlash and criminal investigations, he would need to purify himself. Without a word, he stripped down to his underwear and walked out into the frigid Sierra Nevada winter, towards the remains of the broken-down airstream that he and his devotees lived in for so many months. He crawled into the spider pit beneath the trailer and told his followers not to interrupt him. After two days, Holly Beach, who alternated between worrying that her erratic leader was dead and hoping that he was dead, gathered a group of cultists and ordered them to pull DeGroot out from under the trailer. There, they found him frostbitten, dehydrated, and covered in varieties of spider eggs that had been previously unknown to science but still alive. Elated yet horrified, the cultists brought their leader to his private clinic inside the congregation compound, 
where he was administered to by his team of personal doctors. When he finally regained consciousness, he bolted upright and, still half-naked, sprinted to his office, yelling a series of names and numbers out loud. As fate would have it, these seemingly random exclamations were the full names of the FBI task force that was investigating them, along with their credit card information, social security numbers, and weirdest fetishes. He locked himself in his office, leaving Holly Beach and Guy Fredericks outside, fervently protesting. Within a matter of hours, Jason Mackerel de Groot had committed a reverse sting of sorts on the agents investigating his cult, blowing through hundreds of thousands of dollars of stolen money. Sadly for Jason, while his revelation may have been miraculous, he applied it in the dumbest way imaginable. The members of the task force, as it turned out, did not enjoy being the victims of identity theft and were intelligent enough to gather IP logs and phone records demonstrating that this campaign of fraud could be traced back to the Congregation of the Oversoul, and, in turn, to Jason de Groot. The final nail was hammered into de Groot's coffin when Holly Beach, realizing the storm that Jason was about to bring down upon the Congregation, decided that she had had enough. I lived through the first winter with that prick, said Beach. I dealt with every lame-brained idea that he had. Time and time again, me and Fredericks had to pull his ass out of the fire, keep him from getting into trouble, and dodge healing crystals that he threw at us, and for what? For him to just take everything that we had worked for and smash it to pieces in front of me? F*** that. As Jason DeGroot sat in his office, inadvertently destroying his life's work, Holly Beach gathered up every piece of information that she could from the congregation's headquarters, climbed into her Mercedes, and drove away from Fugged Point. In the nearby town of Fog Mountain, she pulled out her cell phone and dialed to the FBI, telling the operator on the other end that she was willing to work out a deal. Unfortunately for Beach and the FBI, Jason DeGroote was savvy enough to realize that, when he emerged from his office to find that Beach had left the compound, she was likely going to take action against him. With that in mind, he too decided to flee Fugged Point, taking with him a bug-out bag and several thousand dollars in cash. Of the three leaders of the Congregation of the Oversoul, the only person who was present at the cult's headquarters when the feds began their raid was Guy Fredericks. While Fredericks was instrumental in the cult's logistics and business, he was less involved in its criminal enterprises. He was quietly sentenced to ten years in minimum security prison. With the congregation of the Oversoul's leadership having defected, fled, or gone to prison, the federal agents assigned to the case began to dismantle the organization, all the while keeping an eye out for its elusive leader, Jason Mackerel de Groot. Jason was caught a little over three years later. In 2014, he was apprehended on an almond orchard run by the Fellowship of Butters, a small but well-established cult in Northern California. De Groot had joined up with the Fellowship in 2012, and, as part of his initiation, had given up all of his worldly goods, including his wallet. The cult's leader, Michael Butters II, 
had evidently just decided to rifle through the contents of Jason's wallet and found the credit card that he had stolen from his father Oscar all those years ago in Inferno Real. Apparently not noticing the fact that the card had expired over a decade ago, Butters decided to try to use it to buy marshmallow fluff at a local convenience store. As it turned out, Oscar had decided to finally report his card stolen back in 1991, after he gained enough seniority in the followers of the Twelve Chimes to outrank his son. The use of this expired, stolen card caught the attention of the FBI, who traced it back to the Fellowship compound and got to work. There, on the Butters compound, they found Jason DeGroote, dutifully performing his harvest rituals among the almond trees. It was the damnedest thing, said Assistant Special Agent in Charge, Miles Gutierrez. All the records we saw showed that DeGroote had lost his mind back in 2010. We figured that we'd find him as a gibbering lunatic. But as I looked him in the eye, just before the local PD plugged him with three separate tasers, he looked different. He almost looked... happy. What has happened since then? Jason Mackerel de Groot was sentenced to life in prison for his crimes. Crime journalist Amanda Lipinski notes that he appears to be rather well-behaved behind bars, and has only whipped the inmate populace into a frenzied riot twice since 2015. Guy Fredericks got out on parole in 2019. He has since written a book, All for One, detailing his life as the business manager and fall guy for a criminal cult. He has recently started Overcoin, a cryptocurrency that he claims allows customers to trade in pieces of the universe itself. Holly Beach refused to enter witness protection and moved back to Arizona in 2012. She currently resides in Phoenix, where she runs Folion, an alternative medicine company that advises its customers to eat nothing but leaves. And what of the congregation itself? The majority of the cult's assets were seized following its collapse, and the bulk of its inner circles were arrested. Those who hadn't ascended far enough up the ranks to be trusted with identity theft duties were advised to leave Fugged Point and, quote, get a goddamn life. The only official remnant from the congregation that still exists is Fuzzy Friends, which split off from the organization and is currently one of the most successful existing online games to date. Three quote-unquote alumni of the Congregation of the Oversoul, however, have started breakaway sects. Namely, the Fellowship of the Oversoul, started by former accountant Larry Maxwell, the Congregation of the Overspirit, started by yoga instructor Mary Griffin, and the Church of the Big Ghost, founded by Billy Travers, age 7. We have yet to see if any of these cults will live up to the criminal legacy of their predecessor. If they do, well, you know who to turn to for your news on the matter. Me. It's me. Sam Putnam. You can turn to me for news on the matter. The, the, the guy who's telling you all this right now. It's me. It's me. This has been Liminal Criminals. I'm Sam Putnam. I'll see you next time. And remember, pray you never meet their fallen.
Liminal Criminals was originally a true crime podcast by Liminal Studios. It was originally researched, written, and created by Sam Putnam. It is edited for broadcast and distribution with the generous support of the Thonic Riviera government and Deep Self-Preservation League. Up next, it'll be an hour of Nightcore Whale Song remixes, after which I'll be bringing you the news with the evening edition of Studio Community Worldwide Radio. Also, Krista, if you're listening, thank you. We'll have to talk about Hoffel's taste in music, but at least I have something other than dead air now. Liminal Criminals is a fictional podcast by SCWR Productions. It is written and edited by Sam Putnam. It is co-written by Krista Golden. Our theme song is Thonic Riviera by Cornu Amonis. Follow us on Twitter at LiminalCast, or like us on Facebook. Follow, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Tell a friend about us. Consider the common lark. You don't need to do anything else. Just consider it. All links are in the show notes.